0: Hello world, it's time to cue the coach. The world we are living in today has been spiraling out of control for decades in such a way that we are all losing our minds, risking our health daily and choking on the ashes of a dying paradigm. You don't want to continue living in fear or in conformity to someone else's version of reality, do you? I know I'm done and I've been done for quite some time now. Wellness needs an advocate. Holistic health, that is. It's time that we rise to the challenge of creating a brand new world with the fiery passion of a phoenix rising from the ashes. What beautiful essence do you possess that this world desperately needs? On this podcast, that is what we are here to find out, together Let's unlock the pure potential from within. And as Gandhi said, let's be the change we wish to see in this world. And here we go! Episode 1, In the Beginning. What is Q the Coach all about? Every one of us has a story. This story is developed throughout our childhood, into our teenage years, and then on to adulthood. There is also the story of society as it merges with our own individual stories. And of course, lastly, there is the story of the all of humanity and consciousness as a whole since the beginning of time. I love to tell stories, and these stories in particular are my favorite kinds. This business of mine, Q the Coach, and this podcast is about exploring these three stories and on how we can evolve through them into a greater level of awareness and consciousness. In my intro, I mention holistic health. All of the material presented within this podcast leads you to just that. So what is holistic health? Let me describe it to you first by explaining what it is not. Holistic health does not come from a place of modern medicine or quick fixes. Our society has become far too dependent on quick fixes and sick care rather than proactive health care. This perspective has made us lazy in caring for ourselves, one another, society at large, and our environment. We have been driven to consume rather than to create And creating is what we are truly born to do as conscious human beings. Holistic health is a lost ancient way of life that has been lost to mindless consumerism, band-aids, and competition, rather than cooperation, which is what is desperately needed. This is what's decimating our ability to thrive in community with one another. Holistic health is not so much an old, outdated way of doing things but rather it is the one thing that should never have been dismissed as the number one priority for each and every one of us and our society. Holistic health of the entire human experience, the mind, the emotions, the soul, and the body. Caring for these things is truly caring for our basic needs for survival. All of the problems that we have today in our societies and in the world stem from a lack of one of these four things, whether it be what is delivered to society from an external source or in our own individual conscious expression. If we as individuals or society at large are not geared towards keeping these four things in mind, it is counterproductive and not paying attention to these basic needs leads to fear, anger, addictions, intolerance, rage, and a whole host of illnesses and diseases. Welcome to 2020, right? I mean, this right here is what we are experiencing right now is an awakening to the sad truth, if I've ever seen it. Wouldn't you agree? Making a change to this all starts with you and I, as individuals with a willingness to analyze what and how we consume mentally, what our spiritual beliefs are, what the state of our emotions has become, and where they come from, and how we develop our own conscious expression on a daily basis. So let me get the ball rolling in this episode and get naked here as I share my own story with you and how I came across lessons that drove my passion for holistic health to the forefront of my own life and how it became the catalyst for Q the Coach. I hope that even if you haven't experienced such extreme traumas that I have in your life, that you could still find the willingness to take charge of your own life as I have in mine, whether it be from inspiration or devastation. We can find a way to create from either place. So here we go. So I grew up as one of three siblings. I was the youngest and only boy. My sister Lori was five years older than me. My sister Michelle, eight years older than me. Now, my sisters and I got along fairly well growing up. Yet my oldest sister always always resented being left alone, often to care for her bratty little brother. (laughs) Um, my, cause my mother was a full-time single parent and a full-time legal secretary. And she was also just trying to go on dates and, and, you know, find another husband basically, um, while we were growing up and she wanted, uh, somebody to co-parent with at home and, and to, to share the responsibilities with her. So she was very set in, in, in that mindset. And my sister just had a very difficult time with it. Um, you know, a, as she should have, you know, her, young teenage years were spent either studying or spending time watching her brother. Um, you know, she had a few friends, but still her, her life was very uncomfortable in that experience. And I get it. I really do. But it it was tough on me growing up, knowing that, you know, I was left alone with people with my, my one sister who didn't like being around me and my other sister who was, you know, she, she, she had some fun with me, but you know, it, it was just interesting for all of us. So part of that interesting experience was when I was just five years old, my parents got divorced. I grew up in this broken home in a poor section of a very mixed neighborhood of West Orange, New Jersey. I was a very quiet, observant child in public myself, uh, yet a full-on extrovert at home and had what's now labeled as attention deficit disorder. I mean, I would jump around like a little lunatic, talked very loudly and often, and my interest jumped rapidly from one to the next. I struggled to focus on just about everything, and yet I was driven inside to focus on everything all at once. So on one hand, this was great because I immersed myself in every experience, yet fear was also exacerbated, and I was always on edge. I never really got good at anything as a kid. This made my life very difficult. I wanted to do everything, but I didn't know how to focus my energy on even just one thing, to really be really good at anything, to to perfect anything, really. So My parents didn't know how to foster a sense of individuality or how to guide me into using all this energy and enthusiasm into anything worthwhile. They just didn't know any better. (laughs) They were just holding on you know, my, my mother, especially just holding on for dear life, hoping that she was going to get through this parenting thing, you know, and in the meantime, I, I was lost, you know, my parents, my, my, my sisters seemed to find their, their own way in, into, you know, making sure that they were, you know, straight A students, that they went to great colleges and went on to get great careers and then get the husband and the children and the house, like all of that stuff was like, they were focused on that American dream. They were gonna make it happen and they did it very, very well and very successfully. Um, I, I just, I didn't, didn't do so well. I did, I did not follow that, that same uh, thing. You know, I was afraid of school. Um, I was afraid at school. I was afraid of conflict. I was afraid of building relationships, but I still managed to get by, you know, until one day it became scary at home as well as in school. I had no coping skills for what was going to come next. So at age 11, right? This was a very, very critical point in my life. My uncle died. It was my father's brother and it was a suicide. It was ruled to be a suicide. My, my father's side of the family had a very hard time wanting to believe that or wanting to accept that. Um, but he was found, you know, hanging from a dog leash, his, his own dog's dog leash in the woods. And, uh, My mother was also in a dysfunctional marriage at home, so my emotions of fear and the mental state of confusion reached definitely new heights at this point in my life. I had a stepbrother who was a year, about a year and a half older than me, who had been abused as a child. He was angry, violent, and attempting to be sexually abusive with me on a regular basis. I kept on trying to push that away. Um, But the worst memory that, that still sticks with me today and, you know, definitely traumatized me for many, many years was that he tried to make a sexual advance on me under our back porch and I refused and angrily said, no, leave me alone. So then my stepbrother took a wooden baseball bat to the back of my head, knocking me unconscious and he left me there. When I woke up, he was gone. The back of my head was bleeding and bruised. My mother never noticed it, and I told no one. I was ashamed, scared, and confused at that point in time. So again, keep in mind, my uncle had just died, and this relationship was going on with with my mother and and this, this stepbrother that I was terrified of. And, you know... I was afraid to sleep. I was afraid to do anything at home. I didn't. I didn't know what was going to happen to me at any moment. So after that incident, my grades, my attitude about life as a whole began to plummet, and uh, you know, my entire my entire world just literally stopped making sense to me at all. On top of that, I elected to take a music class in the morning. I had made an enemy there as well pretty quickly. Um, just by being quiet and shy, I became the target of a bully. This kid, Ralph. Uh, Every day before class, he would try to punch me in the face. He just walked up to me, and I seemed like an easy target. So The first time he punched me in my face, stung, I began to cry. He looked right in my eyes and said, If you tell anyone, I will find you after school and kill you. Now, being that I was already afraid of everything in life and afraid of everything at home now i not only was afraid of just interactions every day at school but i was afraid of getting physically punched in the face or that i was going to get killed if i said anything so i continued to be that introvert just holding all those emotions in so every day instead of focusing on what on learning how to play the drums in this class right i was living in terror and watching over my shoulder coming late to class being the first one out the door so i could run away i told my mother and of course you know she just told me punch him back. Don't take that crap from anyone or I'll go there myself and talk with the principal. I certainly didn't want that. Cause then I was, you know, if I, somebody, somebody gets told I, this kid might find me and kill me. <laughs> um, so I just continued to this, this duck and run routine, you know, and, and just told her not to worry about it. And so I didn't, I never really learned a single thing about music in that class due to my paralysis that was going on there. Um, this is my first attempt to honing my interests And back then, all it taught me was that my mother was right. The world was indeed a scary place, and that pursuing any interest I had could lead to disaster. I became depressed, quiet, and distant after that. My thoughts began racing at a million miles per hour every day. I didn't feel safe at home. I didn't feel safe at school. I had nightmares constantly. I really needed someone to talk to, but I didn't feel safe talking to anybody. My mother's typical response to all my fears was to get angry at me and to yell, and that never helped. I just... I just withdrew more. Soon after that, my mother divorced my stepfather. Thank God, I was so happy for that. So at least part of that home nightmare was gone. But I didn't quite recover from that year of my life. Throughout my teenage years, I picked up a bunch of dysfunctional friends whom either had abusive parents or negligent ones. They were very, very similar to the situations of my own, um seemed like everyone in my life was either highly emotional and full of anger or immersed into addiction so deeply that they were apathetic misfits of society. Um, I picked up cigarettes, alcohol, pot. After that soon was acid, ecstasy, and any drug you could pretty much imagine, a whole host of other drugs, and finally cocaine, which nearly killed me between age 18 and 19. I thought I was finally having fun, but in reality I was completely self-destructing and sabotaging my emotional development, this time of my own accord. I was just, I was a rage, a at that point. I realized that if I was angry enough that I could not, I didn't have to be afraid anymore. So that drug, that, that cocaine was my first experience with feeling the ability to muster up anger and intelligent words without any fear attached to it. It kind of took away my fear and... I thought that that was fantastic, but in a sense, it helped me get over get over that fear because I never had the fear again after that, but it was horrible, you know? So let's talk about this. So between the ages of 18 and 19, I was immersed in a full-blown addiction to cocaine. I was either, I mean, I was working in the restaurant industry as a server, earning about $100 per day, five days a week. I found two friends that buried their noses along with mine. So $80 of that $100 went towards an eight bowl of cocaine because I had to be the cool guy that had all the coke. And that was for all of us to share at at first. (laughs) At first. Then we all began fighting and hiding the coke from one another. My fears turned into all outrage again. As I said, so I was just, I was a rageaholic. I was cursing my mother out, you know. Telling her to go F herself and stuff. I was punching strangers on the street, you know, in, in road rage incidents. Uh, I was mouthing off to everybody and anybody, staying out all night in hourly hotels and and along old train tracks down in Jersey City. Yeah, I remember one day we actually went climbed up the old wooden bridge that was used in the movie Annie in the eighties. I don't know if anybody's ever seen that. That's watching this. This is a uh, it's the eighties we're talking about here. But uh, feeling old, just saying that. But anyway, that bridge was just standing straight up in the middle of the air. It's still down there in Jersey City, standing straight in the middle of the air, as a matter of fact. But I had drank a 40-ounce bottle of Heineken. I was high on cocaine. And then me and this kid, JW, that I hung out with at that time, that was another cokehead, climbed up to the top of this drawbridge with me. And then we smoked a joint up there. And I was literally frozen up there for an hour all of a sudden all of that rage and all of the high and everything just disappeared. And I was back in that terrified, scared moment where everything in my entire body was shaking and I, I couldn't move. I was paralyzed. I mean, all I could think about it was the image of my mind in my mind of my body, just splattering all over the ground. Cause we were like 250 feet in the air. You know, it was, it was a scary, scary moment when I realized, Oh, holy crap, I'm all the way up here. So I never sobered up so quickly in my life. I mean, that fear definitely took took the, the the sobriety right back into my my body. Once I reached the bottom, which I eventually did after that hour of standing up there, I wore that as a badge of honor. I was enjoying the adrenaline rush. And another time, somebody sold me soap in orange, disguised as cocaine in a in tin foil. When it burned my nose, and I was. I realized what, what had happened. I drove back down to orange. I had my shirt off. I don't even know when I took my shirt off, but I'm walking around orange in, you know, a pair of Converse sneakers and ripped up jeans and no shirt with a butcher knife in my hand that I had underneath my car. Cause I was always paranoid screaming. Where's the mother effer that sold me soap on this corner. And I did this, I I ran around the neighborhood there for about 10 minutes, probably about 10 minutes, I don't know. Time was, time didn't even make sense to me back then. But fortunately, no one was there to claim it was them, or I might have been jailed, or much more likely than an orange, I would have gotten shot or stabbed myself and beaten to death and left in a gutter somewhere. But, you know, I made it through that. But during these times of insane rage, I put cocaine up my nose so often, honestly, that I would lie down in a pool of sweat every single night, naked, staring at the ceiling fans, even in the middle of the winter, for the three or four hours I would try to sleep. It was just to no avail. I used Q-tips the next morning, all the time, coated in Vaseline, stubbed it up my nose to clear out the clotted blood from the night before so that I could snort some more cocaine. And... It just, it never ended. You know, it, it, it was a horrible nightmare. I weighed 100 pounds soaking wet by the end of that year, down from about 150 or so. At age 19, I was caught by my mother and at my friend's apartment where we were having a house party. I was having the time of my life, and there was a knock at the door. All of a sudden, I get to the door, and I open it, and my uncle is standing there, who's a cop, and he's in his full uniform with two other cops behind him, And they just looked at me and I kind of went to close the door and he pushed it open and he said. I suggest that you come down here with me because if we have to come in here or we have to come back and come back in here, I guarantee you we're going to find something up in here that's going to lock you up and several of your friends and you're all going to be in jail. So I was like in total shock. I knew nothing about arrests, warrants. I knew nothing about, you know, search warrants, any of that stuff. So I just, I willingly left. I walked down the stairs with him. They put handcuffs on me and put me in the back of a cop car. They took me down to Newark police station, handcuffed me to a chair and literally set me up for an interrogation. My uncle slammed his hands down on the table and began screaming, just what the hell are you doing to your mother? Look at her. And as he said that, he grabbed me by the chin and forced me to watch my mother crying and clawing at her face. She was a total wreck. Just looked like she'd escaped from a mental institution because she had just been told that, you know, I was indeed using cocaine and I was at this crazy party with a whole bunch of other drugs in there. She had no idea. She was completely beside herself. So it was just – it was horrible to watch, you know, even though, like, it it, it took me out of that moment where I was like, man, my mother is just a crazy control freak that's always in my face to it doesn't even matter if my mother's a control freak right now. She is completely devastated over who I've become and what I was – where I was at that moment. And it just – it hit me. Like, I – I started to really realize how far down a hole I had gone at that moment. So it's like the fear of God was put in me and the, the just the emotional upheaval of, you know, oh my God, I'm a terrible son. I'm a terrible nephew. I'm a horrible person. I suck, mm-hmm. you know, all around. I just, I started to, to realize once again, how much I hated myself. So, my uncle's plan did work, though, to, to take me down to the police station, scare the crap out of me, show me my mother, and I'm so grateful for that moment now when I look back on it, but at that moment in time, I was just terrified. You know, so I went but went home, stared at the ceiling again, but this time I was, I was stone-cold sober, and all I could think about was my mother's face, my uncle's hand slamming down on that table. For the next week, my mother treated me like a child. I was allowed to go to work at the restaurant, I had to call her when I arrived there. This is before the age of cell phones. I think I might've actually had a pager, but my pager would go nuts if I didn't call her. So I would call her as I got to work. And then I would call her again as I was leaving work. And I was allowed to stop and spend some time with this one girl that I was friends with. This girl, Kelly, who was friends at one time with JW, the kid that was our, my, my main cocaine using partner. Um, but she had separated away from him and I, while we were using buddies, but she, I don't know what, what drove her to do it, but she decided that she was going to be my rock in that moment, knowing that I had to wait until I got into a rehab to get the help that I needed. She just allowed me to just talk and talk and talk. I'd go to her house and I'd just talk to her about all these different things. And she'd just tell me what I had to do to stay away from my my other, my other friends and to just you know stay focused on getting clean and staying clean so then about a week later i was home and my uncle pulls up to my house on a saturday afternoon and says okay pack your bags time to go now what i didn't understand about rehab at this point in time i thought i was going to like a an outpatient program where they were going to just detox all the drugs out of me and then i was going to maybe you know go to some aa meetings with him some alcoholics anonymous meetings but what he had gotten me into was actually a 28-day rehab called the Honesty House it was in Sterling, New Jersey. He actually attended this um Honesty House himself several years prior. He had already had like 14 years sober when he got me in there. So he knew the owner well and he had an arrangement there where he could help me to skip the usual waiting list to get in there since you know he was a cop and he had some connections and you know I I, I am I'm grateful for that. I, I always hate it when people circumvent the process to get help or get assistance or what have you. But in this moment, if he didn't do this, I'm telling you, my life would not have lit, would would not have gone on. I would have died if I didn't get into this rehab. So anyway, I'm ter- I'm incredibly grateful. Even though I was terrified to go there, I was welcoming the retreat from my home, my so-called friends, and my day-to-day life that I hated anyway. I I really hated everything. You know, I didn't understand how to do anything but hate everything. I was afraid of it, so I hated it. So it was in this rehab that I finally began to look at the state of my health from a holistic viewpoint. And I didn't even know what this term was back then, but this is what it was nonetheless. I began to analyze my scattered, disorganized, dark mind along with my emotions that had been reduced to fear, anxiety, and rage, and depression. My body had felt that it was nearly destroyed, I suffered from migraines, nosebleeds, sore bones, joints and muscles all day long for a few weeks. If you've ever been on a total cocaine binge, you know what I'm talking about? If you've never been there, don't go there. I can tell you it's not pleasant. You get that first high and you're like, yeah, I'm on top of the world. And then every single consecutive high, all you do is spend time trying desperately to reach that one pinnacle high at the very beginning and then coming off of it and Getting away from it, it hurts, man. It's it, If you survive it, if your heart doesn't literally explode from an overdose where you cannot recover from, you're dead. Then you can cause severe mental problems, severe nosebleeds, severe mental trauma, severe emotional trauma. There's so much. Don't do it. Just don't do it. It sucked. My spirit was broken. My belief in God was that he didn't exist or he just didn't give a shit about me and that humanity as a whole just plain sucked. And that God, if there was a God, he had a terrible plan. (laughs) You know, I hated my childhood, like I said, my teenage years, my friends, my family, myself. But here I was. I was here to face it all. Like I was ready to just face it, to deal with it. I didn't know what it was gonna look like, but there was just some moment. You know, I, I had reached, I treat was, what was taught to me in rehab to be my bottom. And I realized that so many people have a specific threshold for pain when it comes to addiction that at some point they get to that point where it's like, this is enough. It is more than I can take. And every single person is different. So who knows what your bottom might be? I know it could, it doesn't even have to be drugs. You know, your bottom could be a, a, an addiction to anything. Uh, money, sex, power, control, greed, gambling, food. There's there's so many different things that can devastate you emotionally to the point where you're like, I'm done. That's it. I can't do this to myself anymore. So anyway, while I was there, I was near suicidal. I was listening to bands such as Korn, Life of Agony, Pantera, uh, Metallica, you know, whatever. But those those bands, Korn, Life of Agony, Pantera, I say specifically because they all rip – to me represented commiseration of rage, self-destruction, and just a straight-up middle finger going up at the world. I wasn't allowed to have music in rehab, but it was the only solace I had left, so I snuck my Walkman in to play cassette tapes. Yes, I'm that old. And I stored that in the ceiling tiles of my room. I'd put it out, pull it out at night just to listen to Korn's Follow the Leader album on repeat. I just couldn't wait to, to get to that point in my day. And I'd just close my eyes and drift off into sleep listening to <laughs> what I know now to be horrific subliminal programming because I was just constantly pushing this negativity and hate speech into my mind at night to go to sleep. But for for that moment in time, it was better than focusing on my life, just focusing on the lyrics to the song and the what I perceived to be musical talent, right? So shortly after my arrival in my greatest moment of pain, a miracle happened. So let me paint that picture for you cuz this was really really cool. This was this was the moment that it wasn't just the it wasn't the bottom. It was the moment where hope actually started to come into my life. So it was warm for October. It was probably like 75, 78 degrees. Somewhere like that. Kind of kind of what we're experiencing right now in in 2020 actually. This was 1996. So, two weeks in a rehab, I walked outside onto a balcony that overlooked the forests and this this whole whole rehab was like in the in the middle of the woods in sterling new jersey but there's just these beautiful beautiful maple trees behind me and that day the sun was shining the sky was so bright blue there's these beautiful white clouds and the sun is just dancing through the middle of these bright bright yellow maple leaf trees uh maple trees the mate the leaves were just bright yellow you know and i I dropped down on my knees and I just remember I just dropped down and I said, please God help, please God help me. And I'd never intentionally prayed to God like that in, in my life, you know, and mm-hmm. I'm going to explain that briefly too in a moment, but you know, I was overcome by, by this swell of emotion where just these tears started flowing and flowing and I felt my entire abdomen and my stomach just releasing all this pain and tension that I was just holding on to, and these tears continued to flow. My fear and anger just dissipated into joy that I was still alive, and I began to laugh through the snot and tears that were just pouring out of me. I stood up, I wiped the snot off of my face, and I said, thank you. Thank you. I took several deep breaths and I just stared out into the beautiful scenery for nearly an hour, just reflecting and basking in that hope. And I just, I couldn't stop laughing. I was just like laughing and crying and laughing and crying and just like, oh, there's actually, there's actually hope. Like I'm actually starting to learn things about life that I'd never, ever known. I'd never experienced before so my mind was forever open from that moment on like I was a changed person there's something completely drastically different. You know I developed a strength and a trust in God that I never expected to come over me. Divine urge seemed to be just flowing through every ounce of my being, right? So I had a newfound purpose. I had finally found this hope. So a bit of history here that I that I'll share is that, you know, I I was raised Catholic. And my parents had very different views of what it meant to be labeled Catholic. So on one hand, my father believed that I should make all of my sacraments, attend church every Sunday and every holiday, and that I should pray to God every night with recited prayers from church, such as the Our Father. And basically anything that I did that was full of sexual desire or lust or greed or envy or jealousy or hate, all of those things were a terrible sin, and if I engaged in those things and I didn't profess to God to please help me remove those things, that I was going to hell when I died. And my mother only believed in making my sacraments so that I could one day get married in a Catholic church, and that I only needed to attend church for important religious holidays such as Christmas and Easter. Prior it was more about appearances than it was about devotion to God. And I don't think that either one of my parents really, at that moment, understood exactly what devotion to God is from, from my current understanding. But anyway, that was my background. But So as a child, like I was with my father on any given Sunday, if I was with my father, I was at church. If I was with my mother, I didn't go to church unless it was a religious, Sunday, a religious holiday. So no unity on this really confused me and no real purpose of it. Confused me even more and made me less and less interested in God. I didn't see God in my daily life other than as somebody who would judge me and damn me. You know, I wasn't taught the proper construct that what was underneath that religion. You know, I would when I did attend church, all, all I would really, I loved the smell of the incense. But between the incense and the hymnals that were going on, it just kind of put me to sleep hard to the point where I was like literally drooling. All over myself and wipe, wiping it all off of me when I woke up, half hour later, 45 minutes later, whatever it was. When I did try to actually pay attention, I, I couldn't make sense of it all. I sometimes enjoyed the stories, which according to my father were factual events that occurred over 2,000 years ago. There was no metaphor involved in his description. You know, I was made to believe that as human beings we're born into sin. We need to pray to cleanse ourselves for unpure desires. Like I said, lust, greed, envy, all of that good stuff. So my little mind as a child interpreted this as, we're all sinners, we all need to pray to Jesus for mercy and right action, and that somehow a white-bearded man or this Jesus guy was going to answer my prayers and set me straight so that I could enter the kingdom of heaven once I died. And then when I entered heaven, I would no longer have to be in this difficult, trying world. So that was as far as my religious upbringing went, really. So, needless to say, all it taught me was I was a sinner. I should fear God's wrath because I didn't care to participate fully in understanding God's will. So, back to the story about the time I landed in rehab here. You know, and, and I was landed, landed in rehab, an all out sinner, doomed to hell as the abomination I had become, right? Um, so that, that's kind of where I was at, man. My self-esteem was in the toilet, but for some reason, that moment that I told you about earlier, just really made me understand that actually there is a God and it's much, much deeper than what I had been brought to understand at that point. So also in the rehab, there was the narcotics anonymous meetings and alcoholics anonymous meetings that were brought into us at night. I listened intently to understanding the addiction, alcoholism, and the 12 steps that these, the leaders of these meetings talked about when they came in. Many of the people were in there were just, you know, sleeping. They were drooling on themselves like I was in church. They were just about as interested in these, in these meetings as I was in church when I was a kid. Um, or they shuffled about and they were excusing themselves off into the bathroom or not showing up at all, you know, just sleeping in their room. But me personally, I never studied so hard in my life. Like, I was actually learning that there was a place that I could study how to live. You know, my feelings about God had changed dramatically already. And despite the mess I came in there as I was driven to understand what made me the way I'd become, I related so much to the stories of these people that came in. I cannot, I can't even believe, you know, the, 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 the identification of the feelings and, and the, the mental processes that, that went on, you know, even if their life's experiences were, were so different than me. The way that they handled each experience was so similar. And I began to really, really understand that there was actually a cycle to disease thinking. And when it comes to a disease or a dis ease of addiction, I started really, really comprehending that, that it doesn't, it, it's really no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter who you are. What walk of life you come from? We all thought the same way. When you're in an addictive mindset, there's a, there's very very easy chemical reactions to be able to trace and biologically understand why people stay addicted. So I I just kept learning about all this stuff while I was there, right? Identifying so much with the feelings, so much with the experiences, yeah. You know, and, I, and I wanted to find this. I wanted to. I knew that this purpose was was something that I was driven to. You know, this is something that I could actually take on for myself. I could if I could stay clean and I could go to these meetings and then I could bring in messages of hope to other people who are in rehabs like I was, that there was the hope. There there was a hope that I would actually finally have some sort of a purpose in my life. You know, I mean, this was the first time that since I was age 11 where I tried to become a musician and got punched in the face where I could get excited about something, you know, I could get excited about some sort of a sense of purpose and nobody was punching me in the face. In fact, instead of being punched in the face, I would explain my purpose. I would explain my revelations and explain the things that I took away from the meetings. And I would be met with tears from the other person and an incredibly genuine hug. And I just, I couldn't believe it. Like, I had fallen so far out of the culture of being hugged and expressing my tears that it was, like, so moving. You know, I I just, I don't know how else to describe it. You know, if you've been there where you've been through extreme tragedy and then somebody that can relate to you comes up to you and 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 cries with you and gives you a hug, like, there's nothing like it, man. There really is nothing like it. So, so many of these stories were so much worse than my own as well, I want to point out too. But they were eerily predicting what my life would become, and I could see that writing on the wall very, very easily um, because I was willing. I was ripe and ready to hear that, hear this message. So within these next two weeks, I'd learn more about my life than anything I'd ever learned before, you know, in the 19 years that I was alive at that point. Um, when the 28th day approached on that rehab, at that rehab, in 1996, I didn't want to leave. I was learning. I was resting. I was physically feeling better than I had in my entire life. And I was safe. And the only conversations that I really spent my time engaged in were about helping myself or about helping others or about seeing where people are stuck and seeing where others are growing. So nevertheless, I did get out of rehab on a Saturday night. I'd gotten a meeting list from the NA meetings that were brought into me, and NA stands for Narcotics Anonymous, in case you didn't catch that. Um, And I found a meeting to go to the very next day on that Sunday night. It was a candlelight speaker meeting in a church basement. Now, that amused me, because growing up Catholic and and being frustrated with not feeling like I I had a connection to God growing up, I found it amusing that I was going to be in a Christian church in the basement uh, with candlelights with a bunch of drug addicts. And talking about spiritual experiences, you know, at the, in the church basement. And that's the way my analytical mind works all the time. I, I, I look at something, I visualize it, I observe it, and then I take it to a whole deep level, you know. And that used to work in my disadvantage before I learned how to direct my thoughts in rehab. And I learned that my emotions were created from the thoughts that I spent my days focusing on. So here I was just laughing at the irony and, and, and being able to experience synchronicities. So I got to this place in a church, in a basement with the candles experiencing spiritual experiences with all these recovering addicts and who walks in to be the chairperson of that meeting 45 minutes away from my rehab. And I had no idea that this was the case. He was going to be, The the chairperson at this meeting, the person that chaired the meeting that came in to me on a Tuesday night, the Narcotics Anonymous meeting, came in on Tuesday nights. So this guy, Scott, was his name, was there as the chair. His wife was the treasurer. And one of his sponsees was also the speaker. And that person also spoke at the rehab on a Tuesday night. So did his wife. So I have these three people, plus there was an additional speaker. All of them were from that same meeting. I was just completely blown away. So I was seeing all of these same people at the meeting that I had seen in rehab 45 minutes away. What were the odds that they were all going to be in that same spot? In my hometown, no less, in West Orange at the time. It's literally five minutes away from my house. So I just came to realize these people had been gathering right around the corner from my house all this time and here I was running around the neighborhood like a lunatic getting all banged up, right? So, I mean, that was just a, an amazing experience to, to see all of them there, to get more hugs, to have more identification, for them to count me to keep coming back, for them to be really happy to see me and genuinely not just, its they didn't just come into that rehab to, to share a message with me and then go home and live a completely different life. Like they were, I could see that they were really living the lives that they were telling me that they were living in there. And that I wasn't used to either. I I was used to people's words, not matching their actions. And now I started to have these positive influences in my life. These people that were actually really focused on helping one another. So I continued to attend meetings daily. I got a sponsor, Began working the 12 steps, attended meetings every single day for 90 days as suggested, and took almost all the suggestions except for the fact that I was at my sexual peak at 19 years old. And one of the suggestions was to for no new relationships for the first year. And man, did I want to twist that one up. I wanted to be like, all right, well, it doesn't say can't have sex for a year, it says no new relationships. So maybe I could either have sex with old partners or I could find somebody else to have sex with as long as I don't get in a relationship with him. And, uh, you know, I, I did everything I could to try and manipulate that suggestion, but I still wouldn't take that suggestion and I still didn't want, I wanted a relationship. Like I wasn't the type of person, even at 19, like I fell in love very easily. So every relationship I would get in, I would just be like, oh, I'm in love. You know, or I became infatuated and called it love. Let's put it, let's put it, call a spade a spade here. Call it what it was. You know, so my life definitely didn't become all roses from there. I stayed clean and I stayed clean for 13 years. But, uh. I was drawn, I was just drawn to not take this suggestion, you know? So, I mean, even from, from these early days of my recovery and on, I was drawn to research life from the perspective of understanding the mind, body, emotions, and the soul. Um, again, I said I didn't understand that as a holistic health approach until much later on in my life, but I was still driven by that purpose underneath it all. But let's go down the rabbit hole of what not taking that one simple suggestion led me to as far as staying away from women. So, I found myself gravitating towards the ladies, of course. And my sponsor at the time just kept telling me, stay the F away from women, stay the F away from women, stay the F away from women. And I just didn't want to listen, you know, and he could see that. So at f- some point he gave up and he's like, ah, oh, forget it. It's like, you know what? If you're just not going to take the damn suggestion, at least let me introduce you to a good, to a good one. So that you're not bumping your head against the wall. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he, uh, introduced me to this girl that worked in a olive garden right next door to where I was working in a Chili's, uh, in East town over New Jersey. And her name was Heidi. And she came into my restaurant one day to get some bread for, for next door. And I introduced myself. She said, so you're the guy Marty was talking about, huh? I said, yeah. She's like, okay. I was like, yep, that would be me. So I asked her if she would like to meet after work and go to a park or something. She said, sure, sounds like a plan. I saw stars in her eyes, of course, at the local park when I looked at her. And stars were in my eyes, and there it was. I found my new obsession, my new drug, if you will. So I wasn't even clean for a year, and I had found, first of all, what I considered to be the hottest girlfriend I'd ever had. It escalated quickly. About three months of dating, I got her pregnant. She told me she was keeping the baby, and that I could leave if I wanted, and that she would understand if I didn't want this responsibility. As terrified as I was, I told her I would stick and stay, and I would I would do it. You know, I I would be the man. I would show up. I, I was totally ready. I was not ready. <laughs> I was terrified, but I wanted to do the right thing. You know, so I, I I got a new sponsor because my first sponsor just reminded me too much of my mother. He he was constantly you know, yelling at me for things I did wrong. And then I got a new sponsor. So I got a new sponsor that was very spiritual, into meditation, all about the self-help stuff, all about really, really immersing myself in in step work and, and really making some changes in my life. So then he also introduced me to the First Church of Religious Science, as it was called back then. Now it's called the Center for Spiritual Living, and I'm actually still attending there now um, even though there was a, a gap of time in my life where I wasn't but uh, I began how to learn how to I began to learn how to meditate and that my thoughts created my reality that I was living in I began to create a life I desired living in and for a while I was on top of the world practicing this teaching going to meetings started to sponsor people you know I was working my step work I was living the best life that I had the best version of myself that I could be But nine months later, in bliss and excitement, when Heidi gave birth to a beautiful baby boy who's named Brandon, um, he's now 22 years old at the date of this recording. I was 21 myself for only a week before he was born. So I was still clean and sober, like I said, but I was still full of dysfunctional coping skills in my sexual peak, chock full of anger and patience and tolerance that often still got the best of me. But for a short while, you know, we embraced... Our new responsibility of parenthood together, regardless of our struggles. By age 23, I was working as an account analyst for Verizon Wireless, earning near $100,000 a year. I was married with a child, dressed in a shirt and tie every day, looking good, in shape, quit smoking cigarettes so that I was smoking like a pack and a half a day before that. I was going to the gym every day. I was literally on top of the world. But my mind was still not healthy. You know, there was still a lot of residual damage from my childhood that still needed to be uncovered, still needed to be dealt with. And that is the exact reason why I was told to stay out of new relationships for that first year, at least for that first year. Looking back, it probably would have been beneficial for me to take about three years to go through therapy and church and meetings and all of that stuff. But I took the hard road, but I fortunately kind of, you know, no matter how many bumps, bruises, scratches, and punches in the face I got (laughs) up to this point in my life, I was still willing to go through it all, you know. But right around that time, 23, 24, I mean, Heidi and I just started yelling and screaming at each other. We hated each other. Like everything we did was just sarcastic and cynical and rude to one another and it just got to a point where I was like, you know what? I just can't do this anymore. You know, so I, I was like, I'm done. We can't, we, this isn't going to work. We're we're just not going to get along. Yeah. You know, I still want to be a parent to Brandon. I still want to be a father and I'm still going to be here for him no matter what, but we just can't do this anymore. So we got separated. I moved back in with my mother and in less than a month from there, my job also relocated to Laurel, Maryland. So all this outside circumstance started cracking down on me again at 20, 23 or 24 years old, where you know, at 11, my, my, my uncle died, and um, I had that abuse situation. Then 19, I got clean and went through this epiphany. And then 23, 24 years old, I'm facing divorce and losing my career. And having to either relocate for $10,000 to Laurel, Maryland, which was three and a half hours away from my kid, and not be the father um, that I wanted to be. Or stay in New Jersey and continue to make sure that I fought to be able to be a father to my son. Now, when I looked at my son's eyes when he was a child, no matter what mistakes I made up to that point to, to bring him into this world, I loved him with all my heart. And I was never willing to put the money ahead of of raising him, so I spent about twelve thousand dollars worth of uh, legal fees instead of ten thousand. Getting instead of earning ten thousand dollars, I wound up losing twelve thousand dollars to lawyers trying to fight, kick and scream to make sure that I maintained a relationship with my kid. And uh, it was tough. It was very very difficult. But I know that. Heidi was just bitter and just didn't, did not like me at all. And and we just, we weren't meant for each other, you know? So I don't fault her for it. I've let go of all of that. Um, I know I made a lot of mistakes. I yelled and screamed and said some really rude things to her too. So I'm not innocent, you know, but we, we just, neither one of us were really ready to be parents together and to be husband and wife. So I just kept going to meetings. I kept talking to my sponsor and I kept showing up for my son. I kept showing up for court. I kept showing up for my visitation. I kept paying my child support. All of that stuff was being taken care of. But then after the divorce was finalized, then I felt like, ah, I felt this need to like celebrate. So I emptied my 401k, (laughs) ran up three credit cards to the max and fell into debt. Still looked great on the outside. As a matter of fact, I had a whole new wardrobe and I had a brand new Volkswagen Beetle, and you know I was going out all the time, going out to to diners and stuff, hanging out with people and buying people food and you know buying little things for my sponsors and and all of that. And life was still pretty good, like I still felt like I had a pretty good handle on it, you know, and I still felt like I was kind of expanding on stuff. I even wound up getting involved with music. I became a lead vocalist for a cover band. And I started singing. This was this all happened at age twenty-four, right? So things were still on the upswing. And by like age twenty-six, after a few years of reorganizing my life and going through some drama, I managed to find myself yet another woman that this time I felt like I was prepared to to live with. Um, I took the relationship much slower. After three years of living together, uh, we were together for about a year. Then we lived together for three years. Then we got married, and a year later had a child on the way. So things got a little rocky as my wife, my second wife's hormones changed through postpartum and then not even 6 months later she got pregnant again with our daughter. So tensions got high. Once again, I realized that my second wife and I were also not right together as parents. Like we we seemed to be right together until once we became parents together, it was like, ah, why is this happening? We we don't we're not working together. You know, and it's not just that we should have forced it to make it work. You know, I, I never believed that anybody should have to force anything to work in their life. And that's what it felt like. It felt like we were forcing this. You know, we still stayed together for a while. I mean, we were together for a total of seven years. And I tried and we, we both tried. But at the same time, we stopped going to meetings together where we met. You know, we stopped going to the n a meetings we began to fight even more than my first wife and I ever did after that i I had stopped attending the first church of religious science so I didn't have my spirituality I didn't have my sponsorship I didn't have the meetings I didn't even have my sobriety i mean i was I was drinking a few beers here and there and I felt like you know my life is pretty good because I can I could drink a few beers and and deal with stuff and not do it just to deal with my problems but I can just do it just to have fun so but that that wasn't enough so I, I still needed this outlet and in hindsight sure i should have gone back to meetings and started you know sobering up and going back to my church and all of that stuff and but instead i became more involved with the band that i was in I began playing out every weekend now this act of course sparked outrage from my wife who believed that our only priority should be raising our two children But I was miserable at my job. I was miserable at home. And the escape was really helping me to cope. And I tried to plead with her to allow me to have this one outlet. I just wanted her to support me in it. I wanted her to show up. I was trying to bring money into the house. I was finally doing something I loved. I was following my childhood dream. I was a musician when she met me. Like, there was all these reasons why I felt justified, you know. And I felt like all this was supposed to work but we just couldn't agree, you know, and I finally said either we go to marriage counseling to work this out or I want a divorce. And then we went to marriage counseling for about nine months, which is interesting because it's about the same amount of time it takes to have a baby. Right. And the marriage counselor was taking my side. So nothing wrong with me being a musician, as long as I was actively raising our children and showing up. And, you know, her first question to to my ex-wife was, was Michael a musician when you met him? And of course she said, yes. And, you know, so I, I really felt like there was hope there, but you know, she came back from going to a wedding that she went to in Puerto Rico and told me that she wanted a divorce. You know, and there's there's a little more to the story there, but you know, for, for my kids' sake, I don't really want to discuss that in this podcast. But needless to say, she wanted a divorce and I was one hundred percent for it at that point. I was like, you know what? I hate that I'm going through this again but I need to do this. You know, I I just need to go through this. I can't be unhappy. I can't, I just can't do this. You know, I I didn't feel like I rushed into this, but it just still didn't work out, you know? So this time um, I'm going through divorce number two and another pattern repeats itself. My mother this time at 62 years old dies from major complications with her thyroid. And it was really sudden like six months of strange psychiatric treatments that happened after her thyroid went crazy. And she may have been even given a drug that reacted terribly with her thyroid um, in a hospital, you know, but that was never really proven, but she did. She died at 62 years old, you know? So it was another situation where it was hard to, it's hard to accept that just more, more death and divorce and all this stuff. So I moved out of my apartment that I had with my wife and I moved in with a new girlfriend because I was really pissed about the way things went down. Um, That was definitely not healthy in any way, shape or form. And then from there, I moved above a biker bar in the middle of the Pine Barrens. My mother was no longer there to guide me through this one. She was not there to help me talk to the lawyers. She was not there to help me be a good father, any of that stuff. I was all on my own this time. So I was grateful for the freedom from her control, but on the other hand, I didn't feel like I had anywhere to turn at this point. No meetings, no church, no mom, no friends, nothing. You know, so life spent out of control for a few years till, till I took a few more months to myself, living with my father and returning to meetings for a while. began building a healthy relationship with my ex-wife so that even separated, we could work together on parenting our two children. It was rocky at first, but we truly have worked closely together ever since, and this was a far, far, far better outcome than what had happened with my first wife like I said my first wife and I we rushed in so so fast we didn't realize we hated each other my second wife and I we we tried to really take our time and and work things out and and be there for each other and we thought we knew what love was and we tried really hard until we realized that that just wasn't what we had you know what we had was was two people willing to try and put this relationship together but we just both made a lot of mistakes and it wasn't something that was really going to be reconciled because there wasn't that kind of love there for us. You know, I remember telling her at one point that it's like, I feel like it's like trying to love my sister. Like it doesn't, this doesn't feel like it should be a marriage. So anyway, so like I said, we're, we're good friends now. We get along very well. And this is all because, you know, I spent a whole lot of time reconnecting with my soul, my dignity, my priorities, the foundation I had built over those 13 years where I had stayed clean and sober. And even though I had grown the need to go to meetings and the addiction, I didn't feel like I fit in there anymore because I was able to quickly stop drinking and just return to the spiritual principles that I had in my life. So I did begin at that point to start attending the First Church of Religious Science here and there. Like I was going to, it's called Center for Spiritual Living now, like I said, but there's a there's one in Princeton, there's one in Caldwell, and there's one in Morristown. And I was kind of circulating, maybe once a month, I'd go to one, or one of the three of them, you know, for, for quite quite some time. But all the while in the background, I started studying and participating in the understanding of the world and human consciousness and emotional stability through constant research and application of all this personal drama i had been going through, like I I had to use all this stuff in my own personal life. So now that i would gotten all of my teenage angst out and made some huge adult mistakes, I began to realize that none of what I went through was an accident and my recovery through all of it could be used to help others and not just in meetings anymore. I know that this was what I was born to do. I've learned through love and loss. I've learned through friendships and betrayal. I've learned through deep introspection. Huge mistakes, huge mistakes that I've made along the way, but that really still helped drive my life's purpose. Like if I can make those huge mistakes and I see that, I can see myself coming. Now I can also see others coming before they get to those very same mistakes. So I learned that the reason I kept making those mistakes was because I wasn't aligned with my true purpose or the society in which I was raised for that matter. I don't get along very well in the society that we've created. And there's a reason for that. At some point I'll get to that in later episodes, but the ideals I I was chasing weren't organized. You know, I was, I now I just can't unlearn what I've uncovered and what I've learned through the experiences I've had, you know, and the growth I had from finally taking deep control of my own life in my thirties has been exponential. I'm now on the leadership council and education team for the First Church of Religious Science, sorry, Center for Spiritual Living Um, in Morristown. I feed my brain with quantum physics, ancient spiritual practices, and everything to do with holistic health. I've removed toxins from my life. I stay balanced daily. I give back to society in a much deeper way than I've ever learned to in 12-step meetings. I have an excellent relationship with all my children, and I show up for life every day with gratitude and hope every single day. I have a beautiful woman by my side in a relationship based on true love, all for the right reasons. Not about the kids, not about some huge wedding, not about any material things, just about genuinely being there for each other and truly, truly loving each other. You know, So although the outer world seems to be falling apart, In this society we're living in right now with this COVID-19 stuff going on and all of the financial implications that 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 has, you know, in the real estate market and all of these things that are in a very, very shaky spot right now, my world continues to grow in love and light. I have a purpose that I'm proud of and driven by. And I know that we need to move beyond the old way of doing things and into a new paradigm. So this podcast is about sharing all the discoveries I've made through these hard life experiences that I've had with you, the listener. And it's to point you towards the application of spiritual ideals within your own life and inspire you to inspire you to become the best version of yourself. Now, why? Because quite frankly, it's far beyond time for humanity to evolve into the greatest version of itself. And I love the challenge of co-creating this evolution It's my passion and my purpose. This is truly a life worth living. So strap in. If you are ready to do the real work on figuring out how to breathe a little easier, how to handle your emotional landscape, how to rearrange the things outside of you to match what you need to be able to bring the best inside of you out, This is going to be one hell of a ride to get you there. So I want you to listen closely to these episodes. Stay connected. I believe no matter where you are in life, whether you're in deep, intense amounts of struggle or you're just bored to hell and can't seem to find the motivation to really bring something exciting into your life, I want to be here for you and I am here for you. And I will say namaste, which means the God in me honors the God in you. One day, maybe you'll come to understand that in one of these podcasts a little bit deeper. But for today, thank you for listening to my bare naked story, getting to know me a little bit in this extra long episode of Cue the Coach. This is definitely the longest episode I will probably ever create because it's a huge story of all of what brought me here to this moment. But the next episode, i probably try and keep these episodes under a half hour every week for the most part, but it'll be a little loose, you know. But I'm going to try and just keep it short so that I keep you entertained and interested and, you know, entertain you on your commute and things of that such. So anyway, tune into the next episode where we'll dive into holistic health in great detail and immerse ourselves into some... Forbidden knowledge. Peace out, everybody.